Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, team. Do you understand that the incredible talent to be able to take an ancient song like this and bring it to modern day singing? That is a unique gift from God. Thank you. Thank you. I also forgot to mention that at the end of the service, we're all going to be at the Commons to welcome our new members. Please come and join us. Uh, it will be a great opportunity for us to meet our new brothers and sisters in Christ who have just joined the church and um, right at the end of this service. I think I am safe in saying that very few of you have heard the name Will Rogers. <laughs> I know some have, uh, but just looking around here, uh, be probably few, but let me tell you about him, okay? He was a cowboy, a comedian, a writer, and an actor. That was back in the 1930s. Will Rogers made more than 70, 70, 70 motion pictures, movies. Uh, he was known for his gentle but insightful political humor. He once said, I don't make fun of government. I just watch the government and report the facts. <laughs> In August of 1935, Will Rogers was flying across Alaska with a very famous aviator by the name of Willie Post. In fact, Willie Post was the first one to fly around the world solo. And sadly, they were taking off, their plane nosedived into a lagoon and they died on impact. The world really stunned by the death of these two beloved American icons. In memory of Will Rogers, a screenwriter by the name of Respite Hughes penned his memoir about Will Rogers, of one experience that he seen with his own eyes, and it was published, believe it or not, just about in every American newspaper at the time. Here's how... He wrote it. He said, I had the privilege of hearing Rogers <clears throat> in one of the most uproariously funny speeches I've ever heard of him give at the Milton H. Berry Institute. Now, the Milton H. Berry Institute back then was for people who were physically uh, incapacitated, paralyzed, people who suffered uh, all kinds of physical incapacities. And he said the speech was so funny, it was so humorous that every boy, every girl, every man, every woman in the room just uh, laughed uncontrollably at his jokes. Meanwhile, uh, few people realize how totally broken on the inside where Rogers was, over the sight of these dear people who were incapacitated. He said he was so broken uh, on the inside at the physical incapacity. And so the writer goes on to say, I happened to go into the men's room right after he finished his speech. And he did, didn't think he saw him but he said, I looked in that door, and I hear that famous man by 
back then was a funny, famous man. He was leaning against the wall and his head in his hand, sobbing like a baby. The man who made so many people laugh kept his heart brokenness privately. He never showed his brokenness in public. The man said, I closed the door. I did not want to embarrass him, and I left. Now, in many ways, this is what I call the paradoxical principle. The man who made people laugh publicly, he was broken inside privately. Uh, To give the gift of joy to others, one has to accept the burden of inward sorrow. This paradox principle is all over the scripture. And while the world says in order to get ahead, don't worry about how many people you step over, just go and get your thing. The Bible said those who are last will be first. Now to me, this whole matter of brokenness, I have experienced it and I believe it and I've seen it in many a life. It's the secret to wholeness. Can I get an amen? Amen. The beauty of brokenness is that it always gets God's blessing. I've never seen it fail. It always gets God's blessings because it's only when Jacob was broken at Penel after wrestling with God was he closed with power. Only when the rock at Horeb was broken, that cool, refreshing water gushed out. Only when Gideon's 300 men broke their jars, a symbol of, broken, of their personal brokenness, that the power of God was unleashed against their enemies and gave them victory. Only when Mary broke that very expensive alabaster box to anoint the feet of Jesus, Could the beautiful fragrance fill the room? Only when Jesus broke the five loaves and the two fishes could they multiply and feed 5,000 people. Only when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the sinless God, his body was broken, his sinless body, holy body was broken on the cross that healing and redemption have poured out. I know that many of you could testify with me. As we look back, we can testify to the beauty of brokenness. Not at the time, I want to be realistic, not at the time, but then when we look back at the past, we often experience untold blessings out of that brokenness. Always blessing follows brokenness. Listen to me, please. This kind of biblical principle can never, 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 never be understood or comprehended by the world at large. It can never be. And so, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, you see a broken godly woman named Hannah. And yet out 
of her broken-hearted prayer came a man who influenced the course of history in a way that she could never imagine, in a mighty way that she could never even expect it. Came a man who anointed the king from whose lineage the savior of the world could be born. So I begin today a series of four messages which I deliberately called what godly women of old can teach our internet generation. Because I think we, we think that we're smart and that we're smarter than previous generations. We really do. We think we're just too smart for, for our own good. But I want this abuse you of that concept right now. Turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if you don't have your own Bible, there's a few Bibles scattered around. You can grab one and follow with me. It's very important because I'm going to go verse by verse. And so grab a, a, the pew Bible underneath the, the pews in front of you. It's page 418, page 418, 1 Samuel chapter 1. First, I have to tell you, as you're finding it, about the tale of two wives. <laughs> that woman that I'm going to focus on today, named Hannah, which means favored or gracious. Either word can mean that in, in, in Hebrew. This woman was truly gracious. She was selfless. She was thoughtful. And that is why I'm going to take two messages just on Hannah and then the others will follow. Although her name could mean favorite, as I told you, but she was far from feeling favored. She was inwardly broken at her physical inability to conceive a child. And as we look at her life, you will see that she was favored by God even when she did not know it. <laughs> that she was favored by God, and God revealed his favor to her after her brokenness. He actually favored her beyond her own imagination or the imagination of anybody around her. Hannah was one of two wives of Elkanah. The other wife was named Peninnah. Even though Elkanah favored Hannah, over Penina, perhaps because she was gracious in spirit, but Penina was able to have children and Hannah couldn't. Now, beloved, please listen to me. There is a possibility, and I don't know when I speculate, I'll tell you I'm speculating, it's not in the Word of God. There's a possibility that Alcana took Penina as a second wife because Hannah could not have children. We don't know that. What we know for sure is that there was an intense and painful relationship between those two women, the two wives. Look at verse 6 with me. 1 Samuel 1, 6. Hannah, Hannah's rival provoked her till she wept and could not eat. Year after year, this gracious woman 
was taunted and tormented by Elkanah's second wife. And what Elkanah's response? Men, are you listening to me? Men, I want you to say amen if you're listening. Amen. Well, some of you are. Men, are you listening? Amen. No. <laughs> you might not say amen after you hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss Elkanah's response. It's really important. I'm going to show you. This is a very hard lesson I cannot say I have learned, that I am learning. It's a tough lesson. Verse 8, Elkanah said to Hannah, why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Read my lips. That is a no-no. What is he doing? <laughs> he guess like most men, he aimed at fixing the problem. We men are fixers. We just have to fix every problem. When our daughters were teenagers, and, and uh, it feels like a million years ago now, <laughs> but um, whenever they come and mention a problem, as soon as they want to talk about the problem, I'm already having half a dozen answers to their problems. I got solutions. Man, I, I've always been full of solutions. And I would give them half of that. Would you do this? Well, no, no, no. What about, what about this? And what do you do this? What about this? No, no, no. What about this? Man, I, I, I made it worse. Until my wise wife said to me, they just want you to listen. <laughs> they want you to listen. Men of God, listen to me. <laughs> listen to me. Whenever your wife is hurting or downhearted, the last thing she wants to hear is how good you've been to her. <laughs> now, can I get an amen? <laughs> I want an amen from the men. <laughs> when she's burdened, when she's sorrowing, when she's heartbroken, she needs empathy. She needs understanding. She needs prayer. Not self-patting on the back. Trying to fix her sorrowful heart makes absolute sense to us men. It does. In fact, when we are down and discouraged and, and we're with another man in company of a, a good and godly man who gives us an answer or gives a help us out to think through things, we immediately perk up. <laughs> but that's our logic. That's not how women feel or want most of the time. Question, what do wives need when they're, when they're emotionally down? Again, if the men you're listening say amen. amen. They need your silence presence. Oh, that's difficult. I know. No words, <laughs> no advice, no solutions, no fixing of the problem. And listen to this. Prayer on her behalf and asking God to bring her comfort is a great way to minister to her. But, 
Even in the rare times when she does not even want you to pray aloud, pray silently. All right, I'm going to move on. Now, you got it? Guys, you got that? Amen. You see, there's one thing I need to say that before I get to back to the passage about polygamy. This is very important. I couldn't uh, continue with the passage and the teaching without talking about polygamy in the Bible, that ancient practice, the pagan practice of multiple wives. The Bible always records the practice of polygamy. Did you get that? They record it, but never endorsed it. Not once. In fact, the first reference to polygamy in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, when a man by the name of Lamech married two wives, Ada and Zillah. Lamech, the first polygamist in the Bible, was the descendant of the first murderer in the Bible, Cain. After Lamech, we see polygamy happens again and again and again in the Scripture. Yet, the Bible never once commended it. Not once. The Bible never once portrayed it as a posi- in a positive light. In fact, in every case, without exception, in every case without exception, uh, these relationships cause grief and conflict for everyone involved. As a result of Abraham uh, marrying Hagar, Sarah's maid, what happened? We have 3,000 years of conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. Jacob's uh, polygamy created bitterness among his children until Joseph was sold into slavery. David, oh my goodness, David, his polygamy brought about murder and rape and violence even among his own children. And what do I say about Solomon? Bless his heart. I don't even understand that. He married so many wives, I'm just surprised he even could, could count them. But what they did is they turned his heart away from the Lord. And we ended up, for the last time, of a unified Israel. Nowhere in the Scripture do you find example of polygamous marriage that is healthy, harmonious, and commended by God. Here, Elkanah's polygamy or polygamous marriage, we see that same corrosive forces at work. Elkanah was a Levite. You you know what the Levites are, right? They're the priestly tribe of Israel. But he was not good family priest. But our focus is not on Elkanah. It's on Hannah's prayer of brokenness. Our focus is on how God replaced the years that are eaten by the locusts. Now listen carefully. I think there's more for us to learn at this period of our history as a country, as a nation. There's something really, really important here I don't want you to miss that probably even a few years ago would not have made sense. At this point in Israel's time, in Israel's history, it was a time of social upheaval just like ours. Why do I say this? Because in that historical context, 
It was the time of the judges. This was the time when the nation of Israel has lost its biblical moorings, just like our country. It was a time of moral confusion, just like we're experiencing now. It was a time when Israel drifted aimlessly, just as we do now. It was a time when Israel lost its moral and ethical rudder, as our time is now. It was a time of national division and bickering, as our time is now. It was a time when there were truly leaderless, as we are now. In the book of Judges, we hear that again and again, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes. In other words, like our times, they said, I have my truth, you have your truth, there are no absolute truth. They viewed all religions to be equal in value. Idolatry was rampant. Pagan religious practices were practiced by God's people more than the Ten Commandments. They worshiped Baal and Ashtar and Moloch more than they worshiped Yahweh. All they worshiped Yahweh one day a week, but the rest of the week they were worshiping all these other gods. Even the priests of Israel were engaged in many corrupt practices. And that is why Elkanah practiced polygamy, which is a pagan practice. But I need to hasten to say, and I really do, I hope that you take heart, that in the darkest of times, whether we get darker or not, it doesn't matter. But in the darkness of time, the sovereign God will intervene, and He will do what He does best. He is a delivering God. We don't know that God is raising a Samuel somewhere in this time of darkness and despair. There's a distinct possibility that Hannah, like Sarah of old, before her, when she could not conceive, she may have encouraged Elkanah to marry Penina and have children. We don't know. There's a distinct possibility. Though in this case, listen to me very carefully, because sometimes we do something selfless, and this is certainly, if it, it is the case, it's a selfless act, but it was unwise and unrighteous. But Penina was cruel, as cruel as Hannah was gracious and kind and thoughtful. No doubt, Penina's sharp tongue caused Hannah to stain her pillows with tears every night. I don't know about you, and I don't know those who are watching around the world, I don't know about you here, but you may have been, have someone like that in your life. You may have someone somewhere in your orbit, someone whose tongue is sharper than a surgeon's couple. Someone whose words wound you deeply. Listen carefully, please. Please, please, please. Let Hannah's ultimate outcome be truly an encouragement to each one of us who are in that situation. Listen to me. You might have made mistakes 
in your early life, and you are paying for it now. You might have engaged in a relationship in the past that has caused you untold pain and suffering now, even though your situation is different from Hannah's, but you might identify with her regret. I want to remind you, I want to remind you, I don't want, I, I don't want you ever forget, don't ever forget, don't ever forget that the sovereign overruling God is the same God who ministered to Hannah can minister and bless you today. You may have acted in the flesh instead of the spirit. You may have jumped into a situation uh, with both feet instead of praying. You might have tried to improve God's will instead of obeying it. You might have tried to accelerate God's timetable instead of waiting on Him. What you need to do is this. Listen carefully, please. Start thanking God that He's the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and untold number of chances. You need to thank God for His forgiveness. You need to start thanking God for His overruling power. You need to start asking God to reach all the way deep down where nobody else can reach your brokenness and perform a miracle and repair, renew, and redeem the past. Can I get an amen? I know some brokenness drives some people into alcohol and drugs. There's some brokenness drives some people into anger, to even toward God. There's some, still others who may be driven to false religion and, and godless ideologies. Hannah's brokenness. Hannah's brokenness drove her to the knees of prayer. Hannah's brokenness drove her to the altar of God, not bitterness or revenge. Hannah's brokenness drove her to the prayer closet. I'm going to say more about that in the next message. But Hannah truly gives us a beautiful example of grace under fire. Character that is tempered in the furnace of adversity. Peace in the midst of the storm. And faith under pressure. Look with me please at verses 9 to 11. After they celebrated the feast, Hannah went to the altar to pray. Eli the priest, whose family was messed up, they call it dysfunctional these days, I call it messed up. His own family was messed up. He was in his usual place. In deep anguish, the Word of God said, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, And she made a vow, Lord Almighty, if you would only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all of his days. Please listen to me. This part always gets me. And I'm going to tell you about it in the next message. (laughs) But just as an aside, just as an aside, this is the very first prayer by a woman recorded in the Scripture. 
Now, it doesn't mean that there were godly women who have prayed before her or since, but this is the first one to be recorded in the scripture. These other prayers were not recorded. I, I am absolutely convinced that we are going to be astonished when we get to the other side of glory to heaven. And we'll see how many answered prayers, that God answered prayers as a result of these nameless and faceless women of old. Absolutely convinced. I can categorically tell you that the reason I'm serving the Lord today is because of my mother and my sister's prayer. St. Augustine of Hippo credited his salvation to the prayer of his mother, Monica, who prayed for him daily, daily, never give up one day for his salvation. Now we call him St. Augustine. John and Charles Wesley, who transformed England for Christ in the 18th century, it was because of the faithful hours that Susanna Wesley, their mom, has spent in prayer for each one of them. Only in heaven will we know how many millions of answered prayer because of the prayer of faithful, godly women. A story that I told many, many years ago here. Some of you may not remember it, so let me repeat it. It's a story about a German town, the siege of that German town of Weinsberg. I'm sure Horst Schulze will correct me in pronunciation. Whenever you see W, it's a V. Uh, I learned that the hard way. Somebody was asking another person, he said, please tell me, is it Hawaii or Hawaii? He said, it's Hawaii. He said, thank you very much. And the other man said, you're welcome. <laughs> well, this German town was, there were feuding tribes at that time. And the siege happened just a few days before Christmas of 1140, 1140. Conrad III was fuming at the resistance of what is known as the Welfs, uh, and he vowed to destroy them. As Conrad positioned his troops for a final assault of his enemy's castle, the women, the Welfs or Welfs, uh, asked for Palais to negotiate with Conrad. And the women asked him if he would allow them to leave with whatever they can carry on their shoulders, and then they can storm the castle. And he gave them his, his word. He said, absolutely, you have my word. Whatever you leave, when you leave, with whatever precious things you carry on your shoulders, I will storm it. And so when the gate opened, the women emerged from the castle with their most carrying their, on their shoulders their most precious possessions, their husbands, their sons, <laughs> and their sisters. Once they left the castle, there was no one left. Conrad III watched with amazement, and then he laughed heartily. The women of Welves outsmarted him, but he could not go back in his word. In fact, in Germany, 
this incident known as the Loyal Wives of Winsburg, or Winsburg. And the ruined castle today is known as the Wifely Loyalty. <laughs> Before I run out of time, I need to tell you several things, very important aspects of Hannah's prayer before I get to it in absolute details and look at the ingredients of that prayer. Her prayer was unspoken. Her lips were moving, but she made no sound. She was not trying to be eloquent or profound or articulate. She prayed out of deep anguish. Look with me, please, verses 12 to 18. 1 Samuel chapter 1. <laughs> Eli the priest assumed that she was drunk. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You know, read the scripture. Just, just it, it, it reveals human nature the way it is. It's amazing how easily we can misjudge people. How easily we impugn their motives and jump into the wrong conclusions. He thought she was drunk. Another aspect of Hannah's prayer is that she made no attempts to draw attention to herself. My goodness, listen to me. <laughs> this is a breath of fresh air in this age of victimhood. There's a woman who is worth supposedly about $100 million and on television not long ago talked about what a victim she is. <laughs> it's the age of woe me and feeling sorry for ourselves. Hannah was not trying to impress anyone. She was not trying to draw the sympathy of anyone. She was not manipulating anyone's emotions. Why? Because she knew there's only one person who could answer her prayer. She knew there's only one person who can give her all the power and the help she needs. There's only one person who could do the impossible. Only one person who could hear even her silent prayer. You know, I often take huge comfort in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. My goodness, I can't count the numbers of times when I went before the Lord with no words, only groans, as the Holy Spirit groaned within me. And I claim this promise of the Apostle Paul. And here, God is going to bless Hannah's groaning in prayer and bless the entire Bible history in a way that she could never have imagined. Verse 11, Hannah makes a vow to the Lord. If you give me a son, he will become a Nazarite. Actually, that's a, a word, uh, nadir or nadar in, in Hebrew. And the word means that he's going to be consecrated totally for God's service. That he's going to be set aside. He will be set apart for God's service. 
And man, did she keep her word. Did she keep her promise. And that's what I told you that gets to me. I'll talk more about it. But please, please don't miss what I'm going to tell you. I know evangelical pastors and theologians would disagree. They all have different opinions, and, and this is just another opinion. So take, chuck it out to, to being an opinion. There is nothing wrong with making a vow unto the Lord like Hannah. There's nothing wrong. I know some dear, dear, dear friend pastors who, who say, you should never do this fleece thing of Gideon. We're in the New Testament, and, and, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. Look, I'm, 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 I'm fine, whichever way you choose. I personally believe there's nothing wrong with making a vow unto the Lord. But please, 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 before you make such a vow, be absolutely certain that this is a vow that you will keep no matter what. You see, there's some people say all sorts of things to the Lord in times of desperation, but then when the pressure is off, they backtrack in their vows. Listen to me. God cannot be mocked. God does not forget. And just because he's merciful and loving and forgiving, you cannot make a promise if you have no intention of keeping it. Can I get an amen? amen. The last thing I want to call attention to is that there is a blessing in persistence in prayer. My goodness. I remember in my book, Never Give Up, and the story I told about George Mueller, because when I was a young guy and I would read George Mueller's biography and how he prayed, and within minutes God answered, within hours God answered, and then I really read his real biography and discovered that he had prayed for things for 40 years, and he persisted in prayer. Years ago, there was a famous politician who made a statement that become well known about his absolute conviction and persistence in that conviction. It goes something like this. He said, I will fight this proposition until hell freezes over. Then I'll start fighting on ice. Now that's persistence. The opposite of persistence is giving up. Oh my goodness, I am absolutely convinced there are so many casualties in the Christian life because of lack of persistence in prayer. The Word of God warns us again and again that our struggle is not with flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with human beings. Listen to me. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And they were, but with the spiritual evil forces, and they never give up, and so should you never give up. Let me conclude on my own testimony. There is no place in which persistence is more rewarding than when you are battling these spiritual forces on your knees. There are no battlefields in which victory is more certain 
than when you persistently wrestle with the powers of darkness through prayer. There is no battlefield in the world, not Hastings, not Waterloo, not Gettysburg, not Hiroshima. It is more crucial, it's more crucial to the outcome than the battlefield in your prayer closet. This gracious woman, Hannah, has just shown us that we can win great victories on the knees of prayer. All of her agony, all of her pain only drove her deeper into God's heart instead of revenge and bitterness, anger. She made a promise to God and she kept it. And her son Samuel blessed the world. In the next message, I'm going to look at the five ingredients of her prayer. So I'm going to invite you to come prepared to respond to the challenge from the Word of God. Meanwhile, let me encourage you. If you have given up persistence in prayer, please don't. Get back to the prayer closet. Get back to your knees. The battlefield is already promised that we win. The book, we read the last chapter, and it says that we win. So don't ever give up. Say that with me. Don't ever give up. Father God, forgive us for being so flippant, and we pray for things, and then we move on for the next thing, and we fail to sit at your feet and stay on our knees. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you remind us afresh of the incredible power that we have, that you have given us, and how many times you have accomplished things only as a result of our persistence in prayer. Let that be. Let that be. Let that be the motto of each one at the sound of my voice, for I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, praise the Lord. Stand up and sing together. Before we sing our closing hymns, uh, I would invite the uh, newcomers to go ahead and go to the comments so that we can uh, be in the service of the radio. Yeah. 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 Yeah.